Welcome to the Like, Bite, and Share podcast, brought to you by Schweiden Sons. Learn the secrets of food and hospitality marketing from some of the best professionals in the food business. Here are your co-hosts, Rev Ciancio from Schweiden Sons and Brad Garoon from BurgerWeekly.com. Hello, Reverend David Ciancio. How are you? Mr. Brad Groon, I'm doing well, and today I am stoked. We have a super special episode for everybody. You want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. I'll keep it short because we, we went a little long on this one. It was well um, worth it. Well worth well it. Well worth it. Uh, so, for one, a very special occasion. This is our 50th episode of Like, Bite, and Share, a yeah. milestone. You know, they say every day a podcast is born that no one will listen to, and I, I'm pleased to say, one, people are listening, and again, please go on iTunes and rate us and, and uh, leave comments so that more people can listen to it. You know what that means, right? What does it mean? In two weeks, we'll be a year old. Uh, that's actually not true because we released a lot of episodes up front. Um, uh... But so we'll have a new anniversary. To, we'll have a new uh, occasion to celebrate in a couple months. But maybe, maybe that's our burger anniversary. I don't know. Fair enough. So we spoke to Janice Person and Debbie Blythe, and they are respectively an employee of Monsanto and a cattle rancher associated with Monsanto. And um, this episode, I'm not going to speak too much about it. I want you to listen. It's it's a lot of the truth about agribusiness and farming, what it takes to get food to everyone's grocery store and to their plate. And um, it's fascinating. I learned a ton that I never knew, and I think it dispels a lot of a lot of myths and rumors about about the big business of, of agriculture. And and because it is a marketing show uh, and not just a investigative reporting show, uh, we also loop in there uh, how to use social media to uh, affect the conversation in, as opposed to traditional advertising. Real good example of that. Janice Person works at Monsanto on their corporate engagement team. Her job duties include outreach for both agriculture and regular folks like you and I. Janice works with farmers, foodies, and bloggers on a wide range of topics that relate back in some way to farming. Uh, her primary function there is to help people better understand agriculture. Um, although she grew up in the metro New York area, she made her way into the industry via a blog she still writes, JanicePerson.com, that launched around her passion for the cotton industry. Janice is one of the founders of the Farmer Leg Ag Chat Foundation, which seeks to empower farmers to tell their stories online and remains active with the organization's programs. Uh, Janice, what is a GMO, and why is there such popular outrage against them? Wow, that's a good question, but first do you mind me pointing out, I'm a city girl, and I lived in the metro New York area, but I'm originally from Memphis, Tennessee. My heart's in Memphis. I love New York, too, though. <laughs> All right, well, you are a city girl that spent time in Metro New York. Good enough. Yes, I love New York. So a GMO. So um, I think a lot of us hear about GMOs. We see the label. We've heard conversations about it. But GMO is basically pulling something from one biological organism or plant and putting it into something else where we can find it really advantageous. Um, there's a lot of different ones, but uh, you know some of the ones people have heard about help farmers control weeds like Roundup Ready. And uh, then there's some that are for drought tolerance. So we found a gene in another plant that allows the plant to use water more efficiently. And um, we've done some for virus resistance. So you think about growing different plants that tend to have a virus. Papaya was one that the University of Hawaii worked on a lot. Those are all things that have different genes that may have come from another plant or another source. And they've been put into the plants that we're trying to grow as a crop in order to produce the food and fiber that helps feed and clothe the rest of the U.S. How's that for an explanation? That is perfect. We will pause on that and come back to it so we can introduce our other guests. All right. 
Uh, Debbie Lyons Blythe is a cattle rancher in Kansas. She and her husband raise Angus cattle for breeding, uh, as well as harvesting hay, wheat, corn, alfalfa, and soybeans on their family-owned ranch, Blythe Family Farms. Uh, it's been in the Blythe family since 1890, which, by the way, is also about the time of the birth of the hamburger. Uh, for those of our listeners who are also burger fanatics, some of their cattle does go on to be graded as certified Angus beef. Uh, they have five grown kids who are also part owners in the farm. In her spare time, Debbie goes from raising cattle. Uh, Debbie also pens a blog called KidsCowsAndGrass.com, where she connects with consumers to answer questions about how beef is raised in the great country of America. And it is already great, but we don't need to dwell on that. She <laughs> was named the uh, America's Farmers America's Farmers Mom of the Year in 2012, and is a founding member of the U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, which is, which is USRSB.org. We'll link that in the show notes. Debbie, what is the problem with the current conversation around the word sustainable beef? You know, I don't really think there's a problem with that conversation and no problem with the word. It's just that farmers and ranchers have been focused on sustainability since the beginning of time. You know, realistically, the point of sustainability is continuing whatever it is that uh, that is good about your operation. So uh, farmers and ranchers have always wanted to make the ground better take better care of animals and be able to pass it on to their kids to the next generation so we've already been focused on sustainability for many many years the consumer these days is becoming more focused on sustainability and farmers and ranchers are now becoming aware of the fact that we have to be able to talk to consumers about that and communicate them um, how we're getting better what are we doing why have we been focused on it so I, I think the conversation around sustainability is really exciting, and I'm really proud to be a part of that conversation these days. I think those were two of the more difficult opening questions we've had on this podcast, and I have to say you guys handled it in the most confident way I've ever heard any of our guests do that. <laughs> got um, down. You know, when you're uh, passionate about something, it's not hard to answer those questions. For sure. So at this point in the show, we like to back it up a bit. Uh, Janice, how did you find your way to Monsanto? What was the journey there? Oh my gosh, um, you know, like it was hard for me even to get started in agriculture, but a friend of my family had magazines that were farm magazines, which I didn't even know existed, and gave me jobs when I was in journalism school. And I just found I was working with people that are truly the salt of the earth, and so my career has just moved through doing agricultural communications. And it's probably been about nine years since Monsanto bought a smaller company I was working for. And um, I, it was a small seed company that sells cotton. And uh, I got to join the company at that point. And now I get to work with our vegetable business as well as cotton, corn, and soybeans, which more people probably think about with Monsanto. Um, but I've been here on paper. HR will tell you this is my 20th year with the company, which is shocking to believe I've been anywhere that long. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Debbie, have you, uh, have you always been in the cattle ranching game? Oh, yes, I have. Most cattle ranchers can say that uh, they were you know, raised, born and raised on a cattle ranch. And so I actually uh, grew up on a ranch near Manhattan, Kansas. It, they call it the Little Apple, and uh, my folks have a cattle ranch south of Manhattan. I have a good friend in Manhattan. Oh, cool. I probably know him. You know how that is, small towns. <laughs> <laughs> We'll talk after the show. All right, so from this point, we want to have a conversation about Monsanto and, and some what I like to call hashtag real talk around that. So the, the, the conversation from this point is we're kind of going to grill you guys a little bit and try to get to the truth of, of some matter here. Janice, at one point, Monsanto was the breeding ground for American innovation. Um, how did the company go from that to be becoming like a pop cultural boogeyman? 
Wow. So I think there's probably a few things that go into us becoming a boogeyman. And I do have a Darth Vader mask nearby if I need that at some point. But I think in general, when I... When I grew up, I didn't have farms in my family. Farmers have been so productive and so great at what they're doing that people like my family no longer had farms in our family. We've been pursuing architecture and building and printing and finance and a, and a variety of other things. Uh, over the generations, my family moved away from farming. And that's a high success point, but at the same point, it leaves us as uh, folks in the city who may have an interest in farming, we may not have a background in it. And so I think some of that has come together over the last few years. At the same time, we as a company introduced GMOs uh, 20 years ago. This is the 20th anniversary. And I can remember being in New York at that time and people really weren't interested in agriculture at that same level that they are today. And so later when people find out they're interested in something, they found out it's changed from maybe the traditional stereotypes that they had and maybe it's a lot more scientific than they knew. And so I think the gap of science education in our country probably also fuels that. People like me that went to journalism school may not have as extensive a science background as it takes to understand some of the complexity that farmers and science all come together with in agriculture. And I think when all those things were happening, Monsanto and, and our cohorts, a lot of us in agriculture, we're not actively talking to people who weren't buying our products. You know, at Monsanto, we talk to farmers and ranchers and always have because they're the folks buying seed from us. And we kind of were out of step. We didn't realize that consumers were so interested in hearing about us and from us. And so we've been trying to catch up lost ground for the last couple of years. So what would you say at this point is the most misunderstood thing about the company? I, I think people have an image of a company and a logo and they don't understand how people like me and, and the president and CEO of our company have worked our way up through the company. Um, our CEO was started as a field salesperson. Our president is a family farmer. I don't think people understand that that's our history and that farmers truly are our focus. I think um, I think they tend to believe Monsanto has a lot of other activities, uh, but we truly are an agricultural and fa farmer-focused uh, organization. Debbie, how did you get involved with Monsanto? Well, so as a farmer, we choose our seeds every single year and what uh, what we want to plant. Um, sometimes maybe a Monsanto product, sometimes maybe seeds from another company, which Janice, I won't say any other companies here today, right? So <laughs> I, yeah, I, um, I guess I've been more officially involved back in 2012 when my kids nominated me for the Farm Mom of the Year program. And I began actually trying to connect with consumers back in 1986. I was in college and learning to, um, well, I was, I was working on a journalism degree, so learning to communicate with consumers as well as other farmers and ranchers. But honestly, back in 1986, it seems like we were more interested in doing a good job growing the product, doing our farming, focused on you know getting the job done, and then we sent our product off to market and we really didn't worry about what people thought about it. So 
more of a situation that we've realized we need to make that connection. So I've been writing a blog since 2009. In 2012, when my kids nominated me for Farm Mom of the Year, then um, is when I really became aware of Monsanto and some of their other outreach programs that are absolutely amazing how they give back to the community and how they connect with uh, consumers as well as farmers and ranchers to do good in communities. And what's it like? What's the relationship been like since you got involved? Well, absolutely excellent. Nobody has ever asked me what kind of corn seed I plant. Nobody wants to know what company I purchase my seed from. Um, that's not a focus of, of what I do with them. So uh, basically, uh, you know, I won the Farm Mom of the Year, the National Farm Mom of the Year. They've done a little promotion for that. Um, there was a cash award, which is just pretty darn awesome because I used it to build a barn <laughs> on, my, on my land. And uh, that's been really awesome. The kids put that together a couple of years ago. Um, I've never been told what to say. I've never been uh, force-fed any kind of information. I've always been able to make my own choices and uh, Monsanto has just helped me to amplify my own voice. So I want to ask you the same question that I asked Janice. What do you think the most misunderstood thing is about Monsanto? Well, I think it's kind of sort of like what we do to um, like a fast food. Uh, if you want to criticize fast food, you just always think of a, a certain fast food store that you want to criticize. If you want to think of a grocery store, uh, you'll pick a really big grocery store that you want to criticize. I think that people have just chosen Monsanto thinking that it's big, some big corporate giant and they've just picked a name that they feel like they can label all of the you know giants with, but I really honestly think that if they would dig into uh, what Monsanto does for farmers and ranchers, they'd feel a whole lot better about the company. I think I think there's a lot to be said for that, but also for uh, Janice's answer uh, in doing research for this show and looking at like you know just why just why is the stigma there? A lot of what I saw was a lack of knowledge about the science behind uh, agriculture, and I think people you know when when they don't understand, they get really they get really nervous. Brad, do you mind if I add, you know, at the same time all this was going on, we also had social media coming up, right? And so people were able to talk through kind of unconventional means. So whereas as a company that does B2B, we had talked a lot to members of the media and things like that to get them to understand. Um, this, this whole area of social media made it very different and for stories that maybe hadn't been vetted as closely on the science to get more traction. Well, I think too, if I could say this as well, I think we've entered a phase of people questioning authority. And and I don't think that's a negative phase because then that means we're going to get our questions answered. But along those same lines, and, and you know, I can't speak to how Monsanto does things like this, but as far as farmers and ranchers, we didn't know how to answer those questions not long ago. Just, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, people started asking questions. And we didn't really feel comfortable worrying about consumers, talking to consumers. So it didn't feel like that we really had the tools that we needed. So I think that just knowing that, that we've got to make those connections and Monsanto's doing it and farmers and ranchers are doing it, it's great. Would, would, this is a question for you both. Would you say that there's a lack of food education out there? And, you know, if so, how does this affect, like, the over-educated population versus those that maybe don't have a secondary education or advanced understanding of the farming business? I will tell you, I think 
food education is probably a big gap for a lot of us, right? So if you think about it, you learned health education and, and maybe a semester of home ec and, and things like that. And then you go out in the world and you eat whatever you want to or whatever you can afford and stuff, you know, when you're in your college years. At a certain point, you all start thinking about what else you need to be doing for your health. And I think we've had a lot of Americans looking at that at the same time. And we don't necessarily have great resources that we all know where they are. So the USDA and FDA have a lot of great resources available, but maybe not all of us knew where to find them. I mean, even things like the colored plate have, have great resources for you in terms of food education. But how do you get that to the masses? And I think that's where you've seen a lot more people doing things like becoming registered dietitians and trying to do some of that kind of work from the ground up on food. I, I think you see more chefs trying to do things in terms of teaching kind of cooking classes and farmers markets trying to teach people about direct from the farm what you may be getting. I know I work very closely with some registered dietitians at our office in terms of helping people understand you know people like my grandmother always ate a banana in the morning because she needed potassium we could also eat a cup of honeydew and get the same amount of potassium and things like that are the the kind of nuggets of food education that all of us can use and that's um, part of this rich dialogue we're getting to have now I know Debbie's worked really closely with both uh, RDs and chefs and and things like that that are trying to bring more information to people but maybe the folks on the farm don't have as extensive a network of outreach as as maybe some of the others involved in the same area of food education you know and as far as food education goes realistically most people do not have a way to have direct contact with a farm or ranch one of the things that I say uh, when I connect with people and, and trying to explain why they have to talk to consumers is if I want to know what happens in a steel mill, who am I going to ask what happens on the floor of a steel mill? Well, I'm not going to ask the activist that's on the outside that's protesting for whatever reason. I'm not going to ask the CEO uh, who's going to tell me all the sunshine and light that happens on a steel mill. I'm going to talk to my uncle who worked on the floor of a steel mill for more than 20 years. He'll tell me what the temperatures are like, what the physical work is like, what it really happens. So if people don't have that connection to a farm or ranch, where are they going to find out the information about what happens to grow their food? They need to be talking to the farmers and ranchers. And in my experience, Monsanto has done a great job for me of helping me connect with those people that are asking the questions and then I'm able to make them feel a little better, tell them exactly how I do things and why. That's an awesome experience. Well, speaking of the knowledge that you both obviously have, I love both of those answers. You're obviously both incredibly steeped in the agriculture business. So given the over 300 million people in America, how hard is it to produce shelf-ready and restaurant-ready food to feed everybody at an affordable level? Wow, that is the kind of dilemma that faces all of us in agriculture. So if you think about it, those of us in agriculture are less than 2% of America now and, and in farmers is right around 1%. And, um, and, and that's such a dilemma in terms of how to get people all the foods they want and all the choices they want. You know, one of the great things about where we live 
and people at my income level is I have a lot of food choices I can make. Um, I'm, I've been spending a summer with a college kid and I know when I'm not around he'll tend to eat a lot of peanut butter sandwiches because he's getting the calories and the protein he needs right at a price point he can afford. I think that's one of the things that America's farmers have done so incredibly well and actually when Monsanto first started realizing there was this gap between us and consumers. At first, we spent all of our time talking about how incredible farmers are at doing this job of getting the food that we need to us. Um, and then over time, we started realizing people also wanted to have conversations specific about Monsanto. But so many people are interested in just having the, the food on their plate when they're running to, you know, when they're, they're running home from a soccer game <laughs> and everybody's late, they want to know that something's in the crock pot or uh, that they've got something in the refrigerator they can make quickly. And others of us want to make sure we have that culinary experience. I think that's where America's farmers and ranchers, the differentiation of what all they can offer, give us all those choices in the supermarket. And I'm always in awe of how easy it appears to get food when I'm in the city because when you're on the farm and you see how hard they work for months and months on end to get that crop to us, it, it looks a lot harder to me when I'm there. And I just came back from a trip last week where I saw tomatoes, rice, walnuts, melons, peppers, all those things being grown on farms. And, and it amazes me every time I think about how much availability I have when I go to the grocery or to a restaurant. That almost sounded like a recipe. We may have to publish that. <laughs> would we be, we meaning America or the country, would we be able to feed all these people without farming innovation? Absolutely not. No way. We, we have got to be more efficient. You know, we're not getting more land. Land is disappearing at an astonishing rate. Um, you know, I was just visiting some relatives in Ohio, and they have absolutely beautiful crop ground back there. But the prices are so sky high that they can't afford to uh, purchase their neighbor's farm when the neighbor is retiring and going out of business. So it ends up going towards, um, you know, houses or housing developments or, or apartments or becoming more citified. So we are losing crop ground. We have got to be more efficient and do a better job every single year to produce more nutritious food on the same amount or less land. And Debbie, I think one of the things, you know, as you mentioned that, land is one of the pieces. Water is another piece. You know, farmers are always looking at how to get more crop from a drop of water. I mean, water is, is like a, a resource that's so incredibly precious. So what do you do with that? And especially out west, people are beginning to understand what a limited resource that is. We still have a growing population worldwide that a lot of us um, have traveled globally and, and we're equally concerned about the members of the community in Africa and India, um, various continents and countries. And part of what agriculture enables us to do is, is not only empower a farmer like Debbie, but also be able to provide similar kinds of tools that could help a farmer that may be growing the food that's going to feed their family. And if you can just make it 
so that they could sell a tiny bit into the market. They can have enough money for their child to go to school. That's where you have the opportunity to truly change lives. And that's part of the passion that really drives me and some of my coworkers is, you know, we're working in an industry where you know you have a direct impact. You can positively impact the people here in our immediate community as well as further communities empower themselves. What would you say the percentage of foods on grocery store shelves or are also being served in restaurants are like completely GMO free? So in other words, what is the prevalence of GMO in all foods? Yeah, so if you think about it, um, in the produce aisle there would only be a couple of foods that would, would have GMOs, so sweet corn, squash, papaya. Um, and then apple was recently approved as well as a potato. Um, those aren't currently in your markets, but uh, the USDA has and the FDA have approved those in near term. The other things that people look at is, you know, the processed foods in the middle of the store kind of place. And, um, and I guess as we look at how food is produced in the U.S., we want things that are more shelf-stable. Uh, to fill that inner circle of our store and there's probably a good percentage, a high percentage of those foods would have components of some soybean or some corn. Both of those crops are commodity crops that provide a real stable environment so you can probably keep those a little bit longer and soybean oil is used in a, a lot of pieces as is corn. Um, I think it's it's uh, hard for people to understand there really are only eight crops that are currently available as GMOs and I can send that if you guys would like to put that kind of information on your website as well. Um, so if you want to shop for meats and vegetables and things like that, if you have the time and uh, things like that, you can do that and you can know pretty much you're, you've got a lot of choices. I personally make choices that include uh, all those fresh fruits and vegetables as well as meat, as well as balancing it out with some packaged goods. Um, I love having rice that maybe I leave the package in the, the pantry while I'm out of town for a while or things along that line and pairing it with some of the fresh fruits and vegetables. But, uh, you know, it's, it's lots of choices out there available. If anybody wants to go GMO free, they can always buy organic. All organic things are certified, uh, USDA certified organic means it's free of GMOs. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people don't understand how difficult it is to feed people. I don't think they understand what it takes to have a great-looking grocery store. I don't think they understand what actually has a GMO, what is organic, all these words. You know, what what is sustainable farming or beef? Like, there's a lot of education that needs needs to happen out there. Um, but I want to zero in on like on a super specific part of that as it relates to Monsanto. A lot of the anti-Monsanto conversation revolves around pesticides. Uh, Debbie, can you give us a quick explanation on how pesticides are used in farming and what would happen like if you didn't have access to pe pesticides? Okay, so pesticides is kind of a catch-all term for any chemical that is used to get rid of pests in a field. Um, so that could be a bug, it could be a weed, um, and, and it's, it's just kind of a lump group of pesticides. If I were not able to use a pesticide in the field, it would mean that I would have to take care of weeds mechanically, number one, and that means that we would probably be running the tractor through the field much more frequently using more diesel fuel, 
more man hours, uh, lots more t tilling of the soil. We have started in this area using an awful lot of what's called no-till. That protects the soil so we have less runoff. It uh, contains the moisture in the soil, but what that means is that we don't we don't tear up the soil. We don't use a rototiller like we do in our gardens. We don't do that. Um, but that means though that weeds will grow up. So we have to use a chemical to knock down those weeds. We go through there one time, spray a chemical, kill all the weeds one time, and we're ready to plant. So there's some real pros and also some difficulties with pesticides. Um, they are expensive but I think if you factor in the man hours as well as the fossil fuels that you're using, I think it balances it out tremendously. You know, in addition, some of the, we talked about some technologies, some of the cool things that we're doing these days, one of my boys is in college um, in a major called Ag Technology Management, and they are using GPS to drive the tractor and precision put down fertilizers and pesticides at exactly the place that it's needed. So they're not just blanket treating a field. Every single piece of that field gets treated. They are just putting down exactly what is needed in exactly that location based on GPS information. You store that information then for the next year based on what kind of yields you had in the field, how many, you know, how many bushels per acre was produced, and what kind of pesticide or pest damage, so what kind of pesticide is needed. It is absolutely amazing the amount of money that can be saved both using less pesticides and going through the field less times. So frankly, we, we totally uh, use pesticides. We do farm and ranch in a conventional manner, which to me is actually the traditional way, um, the way that we've been doing it for many, many years. But we're doing it so much more efficiently using fewer chemicals. Um, fewer times through the field and really protecting that soil. Farmers and ranchers know how important soil is to their profitability and that's our bottom line. Janice, are there are there other companies out there making GMO seeds? Yeah, actually there's several other companies and I'm sure they would love their uh, their own share of, of the spotlight. Um, you know, if you look at our competitors, uh, DuPont Pioneer is one of our bigger competitors, as is a company called Bayer or Bayer. Um, most people know from Aspirin. You have BASF, Syngenta, and Dow. Um, so when you look at it, most of our competitors actually are involved in agriculture at different levels of technology and, and biotech and seed, uh, but most of them also have other parts of their business as well. So um, they're not only focused on agriculture. That's one of the things that makes Monsanto a little unique among our competitors is that we're focused in specifically on the farm and others bring the benefit of other biosciences so they may also do some work in pharmaceuticals or some of the other biologically based sciences and and bring agriculture into that portfolio overall but a lot of them are household names <laughs> more so than Monsanto no we've already discussed you're just the villain so <laughs> <laughs> exactly well, I'm going to take this home here for a second so I work in the ground beef business and, and at Schweid and Sons you know, we practice the highest levels of safety and follow the highest quality guidelines available and we create a premium product, right? There's a lot of negative misconceptions about the beef business that kind of gets applied universally. You know, I, I like all ground beef is bad and unhealthy, whatever, uh, or the grass-fed versus grain finished argument, whatever. 
on my side of the business, we have competitors who like definitely have lower standards and therefore will create a product that, while it's still legal, might be of a lower quality. Um, this type of activity, you know, it would perpetuate that like evil stereotype. Let's let's assume for the sake of this conversation right now that Monsanto doesn't exist. You know, are there companies out there whose practices might actually be of a nature that might perpetuate that boogeyman type stereotype? Wow. So biotechnology is probably one of the most closely regulated fields ever in the food business. So I would say our competitors are also, you know, incredibly good actors. Um, you know, I have it's it, when you work in agriculture, you find it's a really small group. Less than two percent of Americans. You tend to know each other, probably like those of you in the ground beef podcasting business, right? It's a small group of people. Um, and I would say I have never found bad actors. It's really complex science. It's it's not stuff that you can do overnight at home. It's a process that needs to be worked through, takes a lot of PhDs. Uh, the regulations are so clear in the U.S. to walk it through that now you have apple farmers in Canada. You have the State University of New York working on chestnut trees. So we have incredible other resources, but I can't point to any boogeyman. I'm sorry. I know that that would be nice for, for us to be able to say that there's somebody else, but I, I think you know people in agriculture truly are the salt of the earth. We would accept an anecdotal boogeyman. doesn't have to be a, a specific person. <laughs> but anyway, all right, let's turn the tide of this conversation. <laughs> this is a marketing podcast. We should talk about some marketing. So <laughs> Monsanto is a B2B company, which means, you know, you supply goods to other businesses. Um, you know, but the product that you use is used to make food, right? And since humans eat food to stay alive, it has a big impact on regular people. Um, Janice, what challenges do you think the company was facing when they decided to start an initiative to participate in the B2C side of the conversation? You know, part of it was just the entrance. How do you enter a conversation that you don't have an automatic place in, right? So if you think about it when you're buying ground beef or you're eating burgers, you may be buying the ground beef in the store, you may be eating it at your favorite restaurant. You know, there are connection points there that uh, for you would be easier, right? For the restaurant to have that conversation about ground beef is much easier than the ground beef distributor. It's the same thing for us. So for us to get started in that conversation was a little bit difficult for us to kind of put up our hands and say, hey, we would love to talk with you guys about that. And so as a company, we actually set several things into motion at the same time. So we set up a website, discover.monsanto.com, where the entire uh, first you know, six months of it was around having this conversation and us wanting to answer whatever questions people had. At the same time, they had people like myself who were going out and trying to meet consumers where they are. So I've done things like speak at South by Southwest and talk about sort of this discussion around our company, our brand, what people think, um, show up at different food meetings, at blogger meetings, you know, go out and find people where they live, ask them what they're passionate about, find the common ground, and then have the conversation. So I think that was the, the first initial part was just figuring out 
who was interested in this conversation and where we should show up and how. Um, we've never worried about what our story is because as a company, we uh, we already know we have such incredible people, but how do you encourage individual employees to get out and share their story? Um, you know, what can you do to empower other people? So we've done a lot of training on social media and things along that line. Um, luckily, I was already out there pretty actively engaged in the social media realm. Like Debbie, I started my personal blog in 2009 and started talking about cotton and agriculture way back then. So let's build on that momentum and help other people get the confidence that their opinion is valued, that their perspective is important, and that uh, here are some areas where you may be able to find people that uh, are interested in what you have to say. So how has that whole process been shown to be more effective than just throwing money at advertising? Yeah, I think throwing money at advertising um, is... is uh, Wow, that's long past in today's society for the most part. So we've really gone in for engagement and sort of moving this to a rich dialogue. Um, I think it's helping our company culture be different. Um, you know, when you think about it at the office, people come in and on Monday morning, they're not only talking about some big ball game that happened this weekend, but they're talking about the conversations they had on the sidelines while they were watching their kids play soccer, right? So us as a company, our employees are getting smarter. Our employees may have done really well on the finance side, but maybe they still have a couple of questions on glyphosate and on Roundup. And so they'll come in and ask us more questions on Monday. It, it's very rich dialogue for us all the time, and I think it's making our employees more confident. It's giving them greater, uh, you know, kind of, it's, it's really increased their passion for our business, knowing that we'd love for them to talk about it. Let's talk to Debbie on your side of this. Do you do you work with any other B2B companies, or is Monsanto the only company you're doing this with? Oh, gosh. So, um, no, I have gotten training from all kinds of different companies as well as, um, you know, encouragement to attend consumer events and support in that way from, from lots of different companies, specifically the um, Beef Checkoff. Uh, has a company called or a, a group called uh, the Masters of Beef Advocacy Program and they're just helping farmers get confident in talking to consumers. Big um, fan. Big, you big know, fan. Yeah, good. Thank you. So one of the big things about that is um, the median age of farmers in America is about 65. So there's not a lot of 65 year olds on social media. Um, so the younger people, and I like to say I'm younger than that, how's that, we'll make sure that I'm clear with that, I, I'm probably one of the older people that's really very involved in social media as well as being a farmer and rancher. Um, so, so I think we've got to get that next generation of farmers and ranchers able to connect on social media, interested in social media and talking to people who have those questions specifically on social media. So yes, I've, I've accepted help from companies to get me to some events and to, uh, to you know, help me out to be able to connect with consumers, but um, my focus is specifically what I want to say. I think that's great. It's, it's really a testament to you know, what Monsanto is trying to do with farmers and bloggers and influencers and how social media can really help to change you know, the age of the conversation, the type of the conversation, the, the direction of the conversation. Um, 
Debbie, I just have one last question for you. You know, what advice would you give to another influencer who's being approached by a brand like a Monsanto to be a part of their marketing? So I think it is important. When I started out in 2009, I really, I've never made any money on my blog. All right, to just put that out there. It's not an advertising blog. It is just a, a place for me to connect with people. So back when I first started out, I, you know, I thought that I could be one of those bloggers that would review things and get paid to do that and get all kinds of free stuff. Well, that's not happened. Um, my whole goal now is to be able to promote um, people to answer the questions that are being asked, that, that consumers want to know how we raise their food. So my encouragement is not only to for me to connect with consumers, but I also talk to other farmers and ranchers. If a company comes to me and says, I can get you in front of an audience, I can get you uh, to connect with farmers and ranchers, I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to be willing to listen. Um, I think we have to be careful in working with companies, though, that want to tell us what to say. I've never worked with a company that I felt that I needed to push their product or, um, or or in any way give them special kudos. You know, another one that I know that you're familiar with is Certified Angus Beef. And uh, my family has a very direct tie to Certified Angus Beef as well as raising cattle that we hope are destined to be Certified Angus Beef. They have done a tremendous job of helping me just you know, think outside the box and find out who it is that are asking those questions and helping make those connections. Guys, there are days that I don't ever talk to a person. I have over 500 cows and I talk to them all the time. They really don't care what I do with my day. So I use social media specifically to connect with people and try to find out what their questions are and be able to answer those. There are days that Brad only talks to hamburgers. so yeah. <laughs> That's a good thing too. <laughs> well, it has its ups and downs, but, it, but that is a very nice segue, Rev. Thank you very much for that. Um, Guys, this has been a wonderful conversation, very unique uh, for our listeners. We don't usually get um, a conversation like this on the show, but I'm really glad we did. It's been fascinating for me. But we wrap up every show with the same questions, and so you guys are going to be victims of them too. So speaking of burgers, uh, Debbie, we'll start with you. What was your favorite burger from childhood? So from childhood, uh, I would have to say we didn't have certified Angus beef burgers back when I was a kid, but uh, a handmade patty on the grill that my dad grilled up um, was absolutely the best with a big old thick slab of cheese and just plain old ketchup and mustard. That is still absolutely my favorite burger. Comfort food. Janice, you're up. Yeah, so... Uh my family actually had two grills, so we could choose whether we were going to use charcoal and wood or whether we were going to do gas grills, and burgers were always a favorite because we had four kids, and so my, my mom was a, a big fan of burgers. I was always the happiest when I got a real bun instead of having to eat it on white bread. <laughs> <laughs> some days we didn't. Some days we didn't quite get the buns bought or something, you know. Um, but yeah, those those on the back patio, those are the best burgers. Well, in the in the uh, realm of like, ooh, farmers and Monsanto employees are just like us. You both just had the number one most popular answer on the show. So <laughs> <laughs> great. <laughs> All right, Debbie, what was the last uh, the last burger you ate? I had a burger just about three days ago, and it was a certified Angus beef burger, and it was a black and blue burger with blue cheese. That, that is awesome. 
this at home or were you at a restaurant? No, I was at a restaurant in Manhattan, Kansas. It was um, Harry's Club. All right, Janice, last burger you had? I actually had one at lunch today. I was sure I was going to be telling you In-N-Out Burger in California this weekend, but today I ended up meeting some friends for lunch at Granite City Brewery uh, down in, I think, Creve Corps, Missouri, and I decided to, to have the burger for lunch. I had bacon on it because I was sitting next to a hog farmer, so had to make sure I uh, also had the bacon. Would have been acceptable even if there was no hog farmer. <laughs> well, you're both going to be upset I had a salad today, so same here. You're set up perfectly for a burger tonight. Absolutely. <laughs> Debbie, why don't you let everybody know where they can find out more about you and, and all the good work you're doing? Well, thank you. So my blog is called kidscowsandgrass.com. It's the three things that I'm most passionate about. My family of five kids, my 500 cows, and my thousands of acres of uh, grassland that I manage. Um, kidscowsandgrass.com and also then um, Instagram Debbie L underscore B and that's most mostly on Twitter and Instagram all of those. And Janice where should people be going to learn more about Monsanto? So Monsanto is discover.monsanto.com and there's some great resources out there about what we're doing with bees and vegetables and GMOs all those kind of things and you can get your questions answered there. And if you want to look for me personally, check out anywhere on social media. I'm JP Loves Cotton. And that's like across Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, all those crazy things. And um, also my website, jplovescotton.com. Well, well, this has been a really, really awesome, fun, and enlightening conversation. Thank you both for being game for it. And I just want to say to the listening audience, we did not give either of these two the questions that we were going to ask them. So you guys did an amazing job. You truly are masters of what you do. Well, we believe it. We, we have passion for it. And I also want to say thank you for being a part of the beef community because without you, I wouldn't have a job. You can't <laughs> sell beef if, if I'm not raising it and vice versa. Well, that gets, my standard, a, that gets my standard reply. I like burgers. <laughs> There's a lot of love on this phone. Really appreciate your willingness to take on a conversation that after listening to all your other podcasts, I was like, wait a minute, this is going to be awesome to, to have a conversation with these guys. I love what you guys are doing, and now you've got a forever fan. Um, but thanks for willingness to have this conversation that maybe didn't seem an automatic fit for some of your listeners, um, but we really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk directly to you guys and to the folks that listen. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Like, Bite, and Share. We hope you found today's interview insightful. If you didn't get a chance to write down everything, no worries. We take the show notes for you. Go to schweidandsons.com slash podcast to find them. If you enjoy the show, we ask for one favor, and that's please give us a rating in iTunes. That helps us to spread the word to others who might find this valuable like you do. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss a future episode featuring helpful tips from other professionals in the food marketing business. Stay hungry.